Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Well, I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about an idea, a principle that is central to American government, has played an important critical role in American, the course and development of American history. And it's one maybe that a lot of us as Americans are familiar with, but definitely do not understand well enough. And I am talking about the idea of separation of powers. We're going to be talking about this topic today. What is it? Why is it so important? And what is the state of the health of separation of powers today with our old friend, uh, David Alvis? Many of you know Davis, our listeners, uh, you know him from his work with Ashbrook and our graduate program, our Master of Arts in American History and Government. David teaches teaching American history seminars for us and has now edited, along with Joe Postel, a wonderful volume, Separation of Powers, a Core Documents. And that's one of many in our Core Documents collection. I can tell you from having it, from looking at it, it's absolutely terrific. Uh, I attribute that mostly to Joe Postel, but a little bit to David. (laughs) (laughs) David, those of you who don't know, of course, uh, teaches uh, politics at Wofford College, uh, where he has been for a number of years now. And as I say, he has been an active contributor to Ashbrook's educational outreach to students, teachers, and citizens, and has also uh, co-authored a terrific book called The Contested Removal Power. Uh, which is about the ability of presidents, the authority of presidents, to remove people uh, from various parts and branches, of course, their own, in the federal government. Uh, He, As he understands it, and we'll talk about today, that's another power that needs to be understood in light of the idea of separation of powers. What authorities do presidents have to remove people? One of the questions we'll get into today with David Alvis. David, thanks for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you, Jeff. Um, separation of powers. We've probably all heard of it. We all took civics class. Um, people will say checks and balances, separation of powers, um, like we know what it is. Right. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, I think when we talk about the separation of powers, first of all, I think most of us assume, right, just from our experience, of especially of American government, that right, you don't you don't blend the legislative, the executive, and the judicial powers, and that they're supposed to be kept separate. And so, most of the time, when you ask someone well, why, why, why do we um, maintain three separate branches of government, they'll usually answer, "Well, uh, because otherwise, uh, you could abuse abuse uh, political power." So if you know if if power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So that I think that's the most common explanation that you hear for the separation of powers. And it certainly is one of the arguments for separating the powers of government. Uh, whether you're talking about uh, the political theorist uh, Montesquieu, 
or you're talking about uh, the uh, framers' own understanding of why they would separate uh, the branches of government. So famously in Federalist 47, Madison says, the blending of the legislative, executive, and judicial powers into the same hands could be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. So that is part of the explanation for why you separate the branches of government. I think, though, the question that's often uh, not addressed uh, in our discussions of the separation of powers is why? Why these three powers, legislative, executive, and judicial? And when you begin to think about the different branches and their functions, I think you begin to realize that one of the reasons it would not be good to blend the powers of government is that they actually are very different kinds of powers and should be wielded by different kinds of institutions. So Congress, right, with its 535 members, is very good at uh, deliberating right, and trying to resolve uh, differences uh, between uh, various constituencies throughout the country, um, but they're not particularly good at acting quickly in, uh, in a situation that requires an immediate response. The executive has been a complaint about Congress for a long time, right? Going right. all the way back to George Washington. <laughs> yes, you know, if you're if you're depending on them to manage a war, which was almost what we were trying to do during, with the Continental Congress uh, during the Revolutionary War, they're a disaster. And so the uh, you and so the uh, uh, whether it's conducting war or the execution of law, there you want a very different kind of institution. Uh, an institution characterized by a singular leadership that can act quickly and efficiently in particular situations. Um, and then finally, uh, if you're trying to uh, carry out impartial justice, uh, it's often better not to have an institution uh, that is uh, political. And so therefore the judiciary has a very different function from that of the executive or from that of the legislature. So at the end of the day, one of the re another major reason for separating the powers of government is, is that the powers are exercised in very different ways, and you want to design the institutions to be best at carrying out those functions. If you blend those powers, then they're not exercised well. So then the articles, the Continental Congress under the Articles of Confederation was just notorious uh, for the poor execution of law, for not really being able to administer justice impartially simply because it did not have a, a, a three separate branches of government. Well, it also sounds to me like you're suggesting that it's not just three different kinds of powers, of course, and it is, but not just that, but also almost three different kinds of human beings. Yes. You want exercising that kind of power. You know, so I think of, for example, when I think of legislative power, one of the great uh, legislators, or at least famous legislators of the 20th century was someone like Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. Who yeah. I think of as sort of the embodiment and thought of himself as the embodiment of the U.S. Senate, a deliberative body that makes law and thinks through things and can't be and shouldn't be pushed by the executive to do things. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think that that's fair. And that is also, too, that the executive perspective uh, on things is going to be often different from the congressional perspective. So the, the framers and the design of the branches of government also, too, design the constituencies in a different way. Congress is constituted by small, factuous constituencies where, you know, the activity, uh, their activity or their, the, uh, the, uh, their political practice 
is constituted by sort of small deal making, you know, between different groups. Uh, the executive has a much broader perspective because the executive has a national constituency. And so those different perspectives, I think, also too play different different critical roles under the Constitution. And so you want different, very different kinds of people. Also, too, I this is probably an exaggeration, but I like to say that um, sometimes bad uh, senators or members of Congress uh, can make for good presidents. Not all the time. <laughs> the congressional. Well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> the congressional perspective is very different than the presidential perspective. So I, I think actually one good illustration of this was um, the presidential contest uh, between uh, uh, John McCain uh, and Barack Obama. Um, I remember one of the things that McCain had uh, proposed as kind of a major fix for American government uh, was to get rid of um, uh, pork barreling. Right, try and get rid of the earmarks that constitute the legislative policy making. And I remember that Obama had sort of criticized this as, you know, maybe that would be a useful reform, but it's really not. It's not a big picture item. And I think actually Obama was right about that. Only a really devoted member of Congress would see that as a solution. But that's a good solution for the nitty gritty of. Uh, congressional policy making it's not really a, a solution in terms of the overall objective uh, of your uh, legislative priorities. So I think that different those different offices bring different perspectives. And one reason why you don't want to blend them is that that it's the contest between those different perspectives that's actually good in the end for uh, policy making. So let's talk a little bit about because I mean, that's in, really interesting to me. It means that people that we have thought or historians have judged to be really effective presidents, a George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln or in modern times, maybe a Ronald Reagan. Um, your suggestion is those people actually might not be very good in the U.S. House or the Senate. Yeah, I would never want to cast an aspersion on Abraham Lincoln, but his congressional career was not stellar. Um, it was probably very principled, but it was not, uh, it, it did not look like his end game. Uh, and it also too, I don't think people really remember Lincoln, uh, particularly right for his, uh, for an outstanding, uh, congressional career. And that is because the perspective of a member of Congress tends to be on small things. Their, their duty is to represent the narrow interests of their constituents and to forcefully advocate the, for those, uh, regardless, right, of the general interests of the rest of the members of Congress. Their, their duty is fundamentally to represent their constituents. The uh, president has to take a much broader perspective, right? Uh, in order to win on the national platform, you've got to be able to identify those priorities uh, that concern the nation as a whole. So presidents tend to be very good at setting uh, legislative pr priorities uh, for Congress. They are, on the other hand, they are not so good at, they, they, they wouldn't be so good at uh, looking at debating, right, the particulars, uh, the particular details of policies. So I, I'll give one example of a reform that I actually, that many have advocated for today uh, to try to correct what they perceive as defects in the uh, congressional um, legislative process, uh, but I think actually would turn out to be very ineffective and actually uh, harmful for our uh, system of government. And that is, uh, you often hear people promoting what's called the line item veto. 
Uh, and so actually in the collection we uh, on separation of powers, we actually discuss, uh, have some uh, documents right regarding the line item veto. And we discuss it in the introduction uh, to the book. So the idea behind the line item veto is, is that when, whenever you're making uh, law, right, there's all these elements that go into the law that don't really seem to be particularly related to the law. They call them earmarks or pork or things like that. You know, the, the, uh, the legislation is often built up of hundreds of these, th uh, hundreds of thousands of these things. And so the idea was that, you know, Congress can't really control itself when it comes to legislative uh, uh, legislating. They just include all these riders and money for their particular constituents. So the only way to get control of this is to have the president be able to line item veto particular uh, things in the law. And in fact, many governors today have this power of this line item, line item veto. And particularly in the 80s and 90s, this was a popular proposal. Um, in fact, it was adopted uh, for a while uh, in the 1990s. Clinton was the first uh, to use the uh, to use the line item veto. And it allows the president, instead of having to veto an entire law, the president could simply veto a particular provision uh, for spending. Um, if the uh, if it met certain conditions, the president could uh, uh, veto a particular line, and the law the bill would still go into effect, but the particular provision could be uh, excised uh, from the bill. And th this proposal was popular because the idea was that it could help kind of Congress um, get away from this. Uh, 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 it could it could kind of tame Congress's pork barreling. And it also could help reduce the national deficit. The problem, I think, with that bill, though, is, is that it misunderstands the role of the executive. And that is when you're talking about specific things, right, that is uh, graft, you know, for particular constituencies, that's the kind of debating that Congress does. Uh, having the president, right, enter into the fray of that kind of narrow, uh, those narrow uh, interests would really distract, I think, the president from uh, the greater responsibility of being able to set, determine what are national priorities. And so I think it would have really undermined the president's uh, capacity to provide uh, national leadership on uh, public policy making. And it also, too, would have brought the president into the narrow fold of debates, right, that go on, go on within Congress. And probably at the end of the day, it would have actually been very ineffective uh, as a curb on congressional spending, uh, because ultimately members of Congress would simply have said, well, then I'm not going to sign a bill if I don't think I'm going to get something out of it. And there's this potential veto uh, on the table. So I think, you know, there you have a real misunderstanding. The, the biggest problem with the line item veto was it brought the president into the actual process of lawmaking. Instead of the broad picture of vetoing or uh, a law or not, it brought the president into the nitty gritty details of lawmaking, and that really, I think, would have undermined the separation of powers. Yeah, so, it's so it was, a, a proper, it's a it was improperly legislative. Yeah. Yes, so, and and it, and it, when it would have undermined the president's distinct role uh, as the chief executive officer. But so that there's does, that, to my mind, though, David, that does bring up this point, which is. Our, our system, I mean, the anti-federalists even said this when they saw the Constitution. They said, well, look, we believe in separation of powers. You guys don't. 
because you haven't completely separated the powers. So for example, the president has a veto, right? Well, the veto is a legislative power, right? He's using it to block legislation and and Congress seems to have some executive powers or power and the judiciary, like there seems to be this mixing of powers. The anti-federalists looked at that and said, wait, that's completely improper. That's not following the great Montesquieu, the French political thinker. And that's when we get the famous response in Federalist 51, I'm thinking of, for example, with James Madison saying, well, no, look, in separation of powers doesn't mean absolutely strict because we also have this thing that we've come to call checks and balances. Just tell us a little bit about how this mixing of powers works for the purpose of preserving separation of powers. Yeah, I mean, there was an interesting accusation by the anti-federalists, you know. We all agreed, right, before we came to the table that on this concept of separation of powers, and then you messed it up right, in the convention of 1787. So the, um, so in fact, right, in the Constitution, you do have a partial blending of powers. Uh, the president partially participates in the legislative process uh, through the veto. Uh, you have this really wacky process for um, for appointing what are called principal officers in the executive branch, and that is the president has to seek permission from a rival branch of government in order to hire somebody. I mean, that just, you know, to... Yeah, to... and that's probably driven many presidents crazy over the American <laughs> history. Well, it's also, I mean, imagine being the CEO of a company and saying, well, I have to ask my rival companies you know, for permission to be able to hire, right, uh, uh, a chief executive officer. I mean, that's the, that's a strange, a very strange arrangement. So, the the uh, the the so the the understanding prior to the American founding had been that you keep those branches separate, uh, and then in the Constitution you get this mixing of powers. So one of the fundamental problems that they faced early on was the question, okay, we know that we're supposed to keep the, the branches separate, but how do we maintain their separation given the propensity of human nature to want more power? How do you prevent that? And according to Madison, right, the great vortex of power in government is the legislative branch. And so you know, the, the legislature, if, if you pleaded with the legislature to respect its boundaries, human nature is going to eventually rebel at that, right? Nobody's uh, nobody's going to uh, restrain themselves because you asked them to in politics. And uh, if you attempt to do what many of the state constitutions had done, which is to just simply lay out the powers on paper, what you end up with are what are called parchment barriers. And that is, they're just as the, those delineations of power are just as good as the paper that they're written on. I mean, you know, if people want power, they're going to ignore parchment limitations. So the question was, well, how do you, how do you, how do you balance, how do you keep these, how do you keep the branches separated? And the solution that they come up with is the system of checks and balances. What you do is you give each branch a little bit of the power of the other in order that they have a means by, by which they can resist the encroachment of the others. So if the president oversteps <clears throat> the boundaries of power assigned to the executive branch and the perception of Congress, then Congress could simply say, well, then we refuse to approve um, advice and consent uh, to your appointment of your principal officers. So what each of these branches now has is that power to check one another. And the best way to think about what a check means is to think of hockey, right? 
the check, right? You, sh- you know, they get in your zone, you shove uh, the face in the glass. Yeah, okay. As a guy from Mi- who grew up in Michigan, I get that. Yeah, okay. you get it. All right. <laughs> I mean, if you're a Detroit fan, you know what a check means. So this, this obviously, that what that means is the founders envisioned conflict fighting really in many ways between Congress, the president and the courts. This would not surprise them. And they would not think that kind of dispute is a sign of uh, lack of health, like something's wrong or disordered if Congress and the president are fighting over uh, removal of officers or who has the war power or that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, if 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 people were angels, right, you could you could use other motivations, right? But insofar as they seek power, you you have to rely on what they call auxiliary precautions. So you've got you've got to use that that natural ambition for power in a way that's productive. And the best way to do that is to give each each of the branches right that that capacity to resist to resist the others. Now, one of the things, though, that has become a kind of murky sort of debate is uh, today, especially on the court, is the following, and that is, given the fact that the branches are not purely separated, but actually there's a certain amount of mixing, one of the questions that's often raised on the court today is, well, if a congressional statute, if a law created uh, a new institutional design that further blended the branches of government beyond what the Constitution specifically authorized. If it did so in a manner that we we agreed, or at least five of the nine justices agreed, serves the purposes of the separation of powers, right? Should that be permitted? And that's a that's a big debate. Can you can you can you go beyond right? Um, the mixing that's specifically prescribed by the Constitution, if you think it helps, right, government carry out its responsibilities and it would potentially do so in a responsible way that avoided the abuses of power. So and, I'm thinking there, for example, of the contemporary. Are you thinking of the contemporary controversy over um, Congress delegating legislative authority or at least seeming to delegate legislative authority? to executive agencies to make rules that have the effect of law? Yeah, and probably more importantly, too, would be now that that has been done for a long time, that delegate, that uh, delegate, uh, as it's called, right, delegation of legislative authority, if Congress were to come up with means of checking that delegation of legislative authority, um, given the fact that it occurs at such a great extent today, into given right, given the fact that the goal there is to balance the powers right between the two branches, even though it uh, might not seem to be authorized explicitly by the Constitution, and this is what I think what 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 is the big debate today on the on the court whether or not Congress can come up with. Uh, sort of innovative solutions. So, you know, uh, one that we talk about in the book is Congress had proposed um, that there be a uh, a, a, legis- a legislative veto on rules and regulations carried out by the executive branch as a way, you know, that Congress can now, even now that it's delegated so much authority to the executive branch, couldn't Congress now check that authority by having its own legislative veto? Uh, and in, in a case, right, called uh, INS 
immigration services versus uh, Chada, uh, the court in that case argued no, right, that that violated the constitutional norms. But the dissent argued, well, you know, in our modern age, right, where this delegation is taking place, you know, wouldn't this be a reasonable check? So uh, that's one controversy. Obviously, historically, there have been controversies over what the separation of powers means in practice, because it's one thing to say, yes, we all agree on separation of powers. Yes, we all agree on checks and balances in principle. But then there are just murky areas of the Constitution. There are gray areas. There are areas, at least, that are not specified in the text. The book you wrote, The Contested Removal Power, that's one of them. For our listeners, that what's the historical controversy What's the removal power and what's the historical controversy over it as it connects to separation of powers? Yeah, the removal power is really a, a critical linchpin in this uh, debate, uh, especially over the separation of powers. And it was so in 1789, and it continues to be uh, and, and during the first Congress, and it continues to be a big debate uh, today. So the Constitution is very explicit about how the president hires people but doesn't really say anything about how the president goes about firing someone. But uh, you know, if you've ever been an employer, you know that one of your critical tools of supervision is the threat of firing. So you know, imagine that a president today had to say, uh, if they wanted to fire, say, the secretary of state, that they would imagine if they would have to ask the Senate's permission to fire the secretary of state. Uh, if that were the case, if the president's authority to fire was contingent upon approval by Congress, uh, then the president could not be could not uh, be said to have control over the executive branch. And so, these the people who ostensibly serve the president in this branch would actually be independent officers. What you would have is much more something like cabinet government right uh like in england yeah i was going to say that sounds almost british yeah so that's kind of that's cabinet government right and 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 so the, one of the things that was debated very early on was well if if the president has to hire a principal officer with the advice and consent of the senate doesn't the president have to get the advice and consent of the senate to fire the person uh, so that was one way of interpreting the silence of the constitution on this um another argued look these offices are all created by Congress. Isn't it Congress's authority to determine, right, how the person uh, is fired, right, given the fact that these offices are created by congressional statute? Uh, and then another position was, well, the reason why the Constitution never mentions firing is because it assumes, right, that that power is vested in the president by the very nature that the executive power is vested in the president of the United States. And the only reason why the hiring is mentioned is because there you are actually compromising the president's executive authority by giving the Senate a role in the uh, in advising and consenting to the appointment of uh, principal officers. So that's where the debate was in 1789. That debate has continued throughout the course of American history. Uh, particularly, it was debated intensely uh, during the Jacksonian era, when Jackson uh, fired uh, the uh, Secretary of Treasury over the removal of the bank deposits, uh, it was again debated right during Andrew Johnson's time when they actually passed the 
uh, Tenure in Office Act, uh, prohibiting the president from being able to fire anyone without the consent of the uh, Senate. And it continues to be a big debate today uh, because of the existence of what are called these independent regulatory commissions. So you have a whole plethora of what, uh, this is debatable, but what you might call executive offices that have regulatory responsibilities. Many of those offices are um, the chief officers of, of those offices uh, are um, uh, appointed by the pre nominated by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. But those officers cannot be removed. Uh, they have a uh, permanent tenure unless they do something extremely bad, you know, like murder someone or something like that. But other than that, they cannot be removed for differences of policy with the with the president. So today we have many officers in the executive branch uh, who are protected from removal by the president. And that raises serious questions about the separation of powers, right? Can Congress limit the president's control over these executive officers? Or does that undermine the president's responsibility to faithfully enforce the law? Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. I'm Dr. John Moser, professor of history at Ashland University and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. The MAG program is for teachers who want to master their craft by building content knowledge from original documents, from the words of those who lived and shaped our history and not from textbooks or lectures. Our program is built around the discussion of original sources, and our faculty, both from both Ashland University and from across the country, is committed to this approach. We believe that the best way to get to know our past is to have a conversation with those who were there. James Madison, Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Theodore Roosevelt, and so many more. We offer two programs for working teachers and a broad selection of core and elective courses. You can learn more at tah.org slash programs. So where are we on that date, uh, debate today in 2023? Oh, in a very strange place, in a very strange place. So the, I think the best way to characterize it is this. There's been a slew of opinions in the last five years, uh, at least two or three opinions in which it's clear that a majority of members on the court uh, are uncomfortable with the protections against removal in these independent regulatory commissions. However, uh, those decisions have been, instead of establishing a broad principle, right? You know, that you can't have independent regulatory commissions. You can't protect these people from the uh, president's removal power. Every case has been kind of decided in a sort of what you might call sui generis way, uh, particular to the to the case. So without implying right that the entire independent regulatory commission apparatus is unconstitutional because they can't quite get a majority behind the position, right, that all independent regulatory commissions ought to be. Uh, uh, found unconstitutional. So what you've got is like, you you know, you have the Consumer Finance Protection Board. It had a single director. 
uh, who uh, was uh, uh, appointed to a term, right, and could not be fired by the president. And in that case, they said, well, you can't have a single officer. Now, maybe what you could have is a multi-member com uh, commission, right? Which in principle is hard to see. Well, if one person's bad, if you can't have one person protected from the removal of the president, why can you have five people who are protected from the removal of the president? So it's not, the principle of the argument is not quite clear, but it is clear that the court is uh, not comfortable, right, with these um, with these independent regulatory commissions. So the court in general, and maybe members of Congress, and certainly I would imagine presidents, except that the president could fire the secretary of state without approval of the Senate, but right. they don't yet accept whether the president can fire members of these independent regulatory commissions, which as you say, do hold vast regulatory power. Yes, there's, and first of all, there's many of them, right? They are, ma they are major commissions, they're federal trade commissions, securities and exchange commission. I mean, these are big, right, regulatory commissions. Uh, they, they wield an enormous amount uh, of power uh that could that could be fairly characterized as executive power and um but on the other hand they are protected from removal and so the court is not comfortable with that so there was a a famous 1935 decision called Humphrey's executor in which the court tried to say well these regulatory commissions are not really regular they're not really executive there and they call they called them instead quasi legislative quasi judicial right well that's an interesting phrase that's a great <laughs> yeah that, that that's something you come up with when you need an answer um so they they called them quasi legislative quasi judicial it's partly because the way regulatory commissions work is they they do hold hearings which kind of look like court proceedings so in that sense they look quasi judicial and they develop, you know, uh, lots of what they call federal rules, rulemaking, for the implementation of very broad statutory law passed by Congress. The problem with that distinction, the distinct label, uh, to bring them out from under the uh, executive control, is first of all, that's just about the same thing that any or any executive office does. Uh, Congress writes broad laws all the time that you've got to come up with ways of implementing. Um, so almost every branching, almost every part of the executive branch engages in some quasi legislative activity. And then they have to decide, you know, in the case of, say, prosecuting a case, whether or not to prosecute, uh, whether to prosecute or not to prosecute. That's a quasi judicial decision. In fact, the very best definition you could give of executive power is that it is quasi-judicial, quasi-legislative. And in fact, if you read the Humphreys opinion, right, every time that the uh, uh, Chief Justice at the time, Sutherland, attempts to say why the Federal Trade Commission is different from any other executive branch, he ends up offering a perfect definition of executive power to describe what he thinks is unique about the FTC. Uh-huh. So at that point today, no one's really buying the quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial. So they don't buy it. But on the other hand, they're not sure they can handle, I think the court is not sure they can handle the earthquake of saying, look, these independent regulatory commissions have never really been constitutional. Another big controversy in separation of powers, which again continued probably from, well, started at the time of the American founding and certainly goes through today, is 
war powers. Congress saying we have the power to declare war, passing the War Powers Resolution in the 1970s, saying presidents can't usurp that power to declare war, which means initiate hostilities, send American troops to places around the world into hostilities or near hostilities. And if you do, you got to report to Congress. There's all kinds of restrictions. Presidents, starting with Nixon, have said it's unconstitutional. It's a violation of executive power. It's a usurpation. It's a violation of separation of powers. Congress is saying, no, it's a restoration of the separation of powers. Where do we stand today in this big fight over separation of powers? Yeah, well, as long as we have the War Powers Act, right, still on the books, we mostly it's mostly a rhetorical standoff. The president will continue to do to to engage troops uh, when needed, and Congress will continue to complain, right, that it wasn't consulted in the way that the statutory law requires. And uh, I think both will avoid bringing the issue before the court uh, because I don't not I'm not sure that they really want to see the re- uh, at least Congress probably doesn't want to see the resolution of that. Um, the in terms of uh, so with the foreign uh, with foreign affairs power in general and the war powers, the I think in in terms of thinking about it in terms of separation of powers, I I do think a lot of people tend to get the foreign affairs power wrong. And that is, they generally tend to assume that the foreign affairs power lies exclusively with the with the executive, with the president. Uh, that's I think that's the way we think about it today, right? That the foreign affairs power lies with the president. Then, yeah, Congress has this War Powers Act, but nobody takes it seriously. So, you know, the the, the assumption is right. Foreign affairs is a domain uh, that belongs exclusively to the executive branch, and. For a long time, uh, uh, with the British monarchy, that was the case. The foreign affairs power was almost exclusively wielded uh, by the king. And um, also, too, if you look at uh, intellectual precursors to the American founding, like in John Locke, even though Locke shifts a lot of power to the legislative branch, when it comes to foreign affairs, Locke says, look, at the end of the day, when it comes to foreign affairs, you're in a state of nature. There are no rules. And you got to have somebody that can wield the power and, and is not going to be accountable to law because your goal is to survive. And that was all, that had been the thinking about the nature of the foreign affairs power. I think the American founders thought we need a way that government can be effective in dealing with foreign affairs and war and, and, and be effective in the sense of being able to survive right in a world right where uh, people don't always abide by rules. Uh, and the dangers are often imminent. But we need to be able to do so in a way that's accountable to law and that che- can check that power, right, in foreign affairs. And so what's most, what I think is America's most unique contribution to constitutionalism is the distribution of the foreign affairs power between the legislative and executive branches. So it's actually not exclusively committed uh, to the president. So the president is indeed the commander-in-chief the president also, too, uh, uh, has a, an important role in negotiating treaties, but also, too, Congress has an important role. Congress advises, the Senate advises and consents to treaties, so it has a partial role in treaty making. Also, too, the uh, legislative branch has an important authority over the rules and regulations of the military. Um, and then the, the executive also, too, has an important role in, for instance, in determining things like naturalization laws. And the um, 
legislative branch has a critical power in terms of the power of the purse. And that is, you know, money is the sinew of war. And Congress really does have a real check on uh, military spending. Um, and this is why the Constitution requires that every two years, right, authorizations for military spending have to be remade by uh, uh, by Congress. So in some ways, right, the foreign affairs power, instead of being given exclusively to the executive, is actually distributed in a way that promotes sort of a, a fighting between the legislature and the executive uh, over foreign affairs. And that's a way of, I think, of checking the foreign affairs power and also to rendering it accountable to law. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, that's what I love about this volume that you've just co-edited, Separation of Powers, Core Documents. It's got all of the documents, you know, if we're thinking about, okay, let's go in and dig more deeply into what David is saying. The documents are in there. Um, just tell us one thing. What's your favorite document in this volume? Uh, I know good. you like them all. <laughs> I know, I love them all. Say, I love them no, all. Say to our listeners, make sure you look at this document. What is it? Yeah, uh, I. You know what? I really like the the case that I find just most fascinating is uh, Morrison v. Olson. Uh, so there's been a re. Uh, and th this issue has come back up. This is about the independent prosecutor. The idea of an independent prosecutor. Well, that's so a today hot topic we have these days for sure. Big big topic. So today we're, we're talking about special prosecutors, right? All these special prosecutors. Those special prosecutors can be fired by the president, but an independent prosecutor, right, under the um, uh, Ethics and Government Act, was someone that could be appointed, uh, was appointed by a division of the court, right, um, and uh, could not be fired by the president. And this person's job was to investigate high-ranking officials. And it's one of these uh, situations, right, where Congress has said, look, there's so much power in the executive branch today. We got to balance it. We need our own prosecutors. And the problem is, is that a prosecutor is an executive officer. That's an executive power. And, and so the question was, okay, well, can Congress do that? And the court offered an argument, right, that in which they supported, they ended up siding with Congress saying, yeah, you know, um, but the, the decision was not very persuasive because the argument was, as long as Congress doesn't interfere with the president's core executive functions too much, it would be okay to do this. That's, a, that's not exactly your, one of those judicial bright, legal bright lines. Uh, and there's a brilliant dissent uh, by uh, uh, Scalia, Justice Scalia in the case. Um, which really lays out, right, the nature of the separation of powers and why this is a, a big deal. So it's a great case. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun set of facts. Uh, and it's also, too, in some ways, a real illustration of how complex the issue of the separation of powers can be. Mm. And how abidingly important it is from the time of our founding until now. Uh, David Alvis, thank you for taking the time to join us today in illuminating this, what continues to be a really important, interesting, and controversial issue. Uh, thanks for joining us on The American Idea. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.